Welcome to Reconciliation Roundtable, a new podcast where we discuss building bridges of understanding across religious and political difference. I'm your host, Mark Beckwith, retired Bishop of the Diocese of Newark in the Episcopal Church. There are forces and voices in our increasingly polarized world that want us to view each other in the issues of the day in a binary way, this or that, good or bad. I want to invite you on a journey beyond the safety of our silos and our egos to the soul, where we have the opportunity to see things differently. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find more content like this, please visit my website at www.markbeckwith.net, where you can listen to more episodes, read my weekly blog, and sign up to get weekly reflections in your inbox. I also explore the themes of this podcast further in my book, Seeing the Unseen, Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. With me today is my friend and colleague, Marianne Buddy, who is the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. She became Bishop in 2011. I remember being there in the great celebration when she took on that role. Prior to that, she and I were colleagues as conference leaders for a curriculum called Credo, where we took clergy away for a week and helped them recommit and uh, refresh their ministries. And she is the author of several books. In 2012, she wrote Gathering Up the Fragments, Preaching as a Spiritual Practice. In 2020, she wrote a book called Receiving Jesus, The Way of Love. And in May, she published How We Learn to Be Brave. And we work together on Bishops United Against Gun Violence, and Marianne has been a leader in the D.C. area around how can we reduce the scourge of gun violence and building relationships and and partnerships to continue to offer faith and hope in this very difficult issue that claims so many lives. Marianne, welcome. Great to see you and to have you as part of this. Thank you, Mark. It's wonderful to be with you and to see what goodness you're up to in the world. Let me start with this uh, question. Your first book, Receiving Jesus, we've talked about this over the course of time. How you have received Jesus has evolved over the decades. How has that moved and what journey has been involved and what have been the challenges and the insights that you've had? What a great question to start (laughs) us off with. I grew up in a disjointed family, uh, divorced parents, and some jockeying back and forth between them. And one of the results of that, Mark, was that my childhood uh, religious experiences were also disjointed. And so while I can remember going to church with my mother at a very early age, I barely remember. And I don't have any pivotal faith experiences that I can that I can draw upon from those early years. And so my first conscious encounters with God and with Jesus took place when I was a teenager. And it wasn't that I didn't believe, but I didn't know how to, I wouldn't have even known how to access those questions. And so it was in high school, middle school and high school. I was living in Colorado. And uh, the first experience I had was when a friend of mine invited me to 
join her for church. And I actually think it was an Easter Sunday morning. It was a Baptist church, as I recall, or at least it was a church with an altar call. And I don't know what it was about the invitation to come forward to invite Jesus. I think the language was, you know, invite Jesus into your heart. But I found myself going up there. And I remember being really scared, nervous, and this very kind pastor put his hands on my head and prayed for me, invited Jesus into my heart, and, um, and if I would accept him as my Lord and Savior, which I, which I did. And I, I can't say that the, you know, the earth moved or the skies opened, but it was definitely the beginning for me. Later on, I would join another church of a similar theological framework, non-denominational where we were clearly invited. I was invited onto a path of faith that was defined. It was restrictive in the sense that you were either on it or you weren't. And it was clear what the path meant in terms of accepting Jesus, being baptized again, following him, and inviting others to join on that narrow path of salvation. So that was my first experience. And as you might imagine, I'm a bishop now in the Episcopal Church. I've had a couple of iterations of transformation along the way. But I never lost my gratitude for those primary archetypal, really, experiences of faith and the communities that nurtured me. But what changed, two things changed that I'll mention, and then we can talk about it further. I never could wrap my brain around, even in those early years, around the idea that there was this narrow path and only we were on it. And even others who called themselves Christians would be suspect, and certainly the rest of the world. That I could never reconcile. And so, and I couldn't, I didn't talk about it with anybody because I didn't want to be, didn't want to be um, disruptive, but I, I never could accept it. And so when I had the opportunity, again, because of a disruption in my family to move and return to live with my mother in New Jersey, who was attending at that point an Episcopal church, to have the opportunity to explore those questions with an Episcopal priest who gave me a wider worldview of understanding of how receiving Jesus could be more gracious and open and accepting of other traditions and faith, that was a game changer for me. And that allowed me to continue on my path of faith. And then finally, I'll say that the other sort of big transformational moment, again, in early adulthood, was the idea of the kingdom of heaven that we pray for realization as we live in this life on earth and being introduced both through liberation theology in Central America and the writings of Dr. King in my studies of the civil rights movement, just sort of opening me up to the call for doing what we can in this world to help realize God's dream for all people. So those are just some of the you know big highlights and kind of are the frame of the spectrum of my understanding of what it means to receive Jesus. One of the gifts that I had as a bishop is visiting these congregations and visiting a congregation that you grew up in when your mother yeah. was a member there. And I asked people, where is God? showed up in your life, and your mother jumped up and with pride that I cannot imagine could be contained, said, my daughter is a bishop. And <laughs> it was just this great, great moment. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, no. And, and she is still, I mean, she lives in an assisted living place now. And 
she forgets every time I walk in that she hasn't told everybody that we meet and I'm a bishop. So it's, a, it's yeah, that's interesting too, because that church had a real transformation too. It took a very strong kind of turn in its life in a conservative framework of, of Christianity and of, and of understanding who Jesus is while I was moving in another direction. And so that even within the Episcopal Church, of course, there is such diversity of understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And I, like you, um, one of the reasons why I think we are colleagues in this work is that I have found life and joy and meaning across a broad spectrum of understandings of what it means to be a believer of Jesus. And while I might have fundamental disagreements with people based on what I understand now, I never want to lose sight of the of the whole and and also how we are all doing our very best to try and understand what it means to be people of faith and also to recognize that all of us can be deeply flawed in our understanding, that we all have blind spots and we all have things that we don't fully understand. That so humility is needed and conversation across difference. And that's deep in me. That's that's kind of that goes right to the very core of my faith, even though my own positions may have become clearer and perhaps for some more defined, it doesn't take away the desire to be in deep, authentic conversation across the spectrum of views, both theological, biblical, and in the social public arena. Your voice and your commitment and passion and clarity resonated across the country in June 2020 after President Trump staged a photo opportunity at St. John's Lafayette Square. And I remember somebody interviewing you on NPR at 6.30 in the morning, and you were responding, and I am cheering your voice. And I think I woke up the whole city as I was listening to you. And then after that, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And one of the things you said is the God I serve is on the side of justice. Say more about that. And it, you are very clear about that, passionate about that. What does that mean? And how is that justice breached in that instance? First of all, justice is a very rich and nuanced and non-negotiable aspect of the biblical Judeo-Christian tradition both the prophetic traditions of the Jewish Hebrew texts and the Christian writings in Jesus's own life is, is just very clear that justice is the way that God's love is expressed in societal and communal terms. And so the dignity and love and well-being of, of people, of all human beings and of all creation, is of fundamental concern for the God that we proclaim and we try to follow through the teachings of Jesus, those of us who are our followers. And so to say that God is on the side of justice is simply to say that God is on the side of the well-being of all human beings and that there is a profound societal expression of love because we are, um, we are so affected and impacted by one another and how we treat one another. And when injustice becomes ingrained, as it is, because we are fallen human beings, in our societal structures, we can be confident, I am confident, that God would be moving 
and guiding us into not only the speaking out against, but the reformulation of our societies in such a way that more people are able to live as the beautiful, dignified children of God that they are. So when I said God was on the side of justice in that instance, I I was referring to the moment, the societal moment, when there seemed to be a renewed awakening and understanding of the racial disparities in our country, particularly when it came to violence and police violence in that instance. And unfortunately, and you mentioned the former president, unfortunately, the president, former president chose to use his voice and to use his power to escalate the tensions that we were experiencing and to discredit those who were gathering in peaceful protest and threatening military force against peaceful protesters. And that was the context of that experience that I, I felt the church, and, and it was since it was happening in my corner of the church, and needed to address. Yeah, and you say that God is on the side of justice. And what often happens is that people often then end up saying, God is on my side. Right. How do you respond to that? That's tricky, right? In fact, maybe it would have been better to say God is justice. It isn't necessarily God's on the side of justice, but that there is just something inherently just about our God. And so I can understand. I was at a vigil last night for the survivors and the family members of people killed by gun violence in this country. And a lot of the language of that service was, we are going to fight until we win, right? We are going to fight until we win. And I understand that because it does feel like we are up against, as as the New Testament writers would say, principalities and powers that are against life. And we need to stand up. And, you know, again, there's a lot of right and wrong, the us and them language in these struggles. In the end, I would say God is on the side of life and God is on the side of love. Mm-hmm. And that we have to be careful, myself included, not to so dehumanize the people with whom we are in genuine disagreement so that we might fall into the very dangerous trap of becoming the very thing that we abhor. And so it's a, it's a challenge, Mark, and I, I don't claim perfection in it. And there are times when I am clearly on a side. In that moment, we in the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, even though there were instances of looting, there was actually um, a a fire stick that was thrown into the church of St. John's Lafayette Square the night before the former president walked over to have his photo op there, clearing, violently clearing the peaceful protesters to have that. We made the decision that we were not going to lose sight of the reason why people were gathering mostly peacefully. Some were not peaceful, but we weren't going to be distracted by that to say that our primary focus was on the injustices that were just laid bare by the iconic, tragic image of George Floyd dying under the foot of an ambassador of the state. 
Right. Mm-hmm. That was what we were going to focus on. And if that was a side, so be it. But to do so with some trepidation, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, and you're saying God is justice. I, it makes me think of the third commandment. Uh, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And uh, I learned, and presumably you learned, that that meant don't say bad words. And uh, <laughs> Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says, no, 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 that's not what it means. It means don't use God to advance your agenda. God is not a tool. I had a parishioner once who said with great pride, he kept God in his back pocket. And whenever he needed to, he took God out and uh, used God and then put God in his back pocket. And I wanted to say to him, that's not how it works. I didn't do it that way, but I've done that. <laughs> I, know, I know. And we do have to be careful. I, yeah. And and frankly, and you and I both know this, the more more we are given the mantles of spiritual authority, we have to be really careful about that. And to be honest, the main thing I wanted to say in that really terrible crucible moment was that the former president had assumed the mantle of spiritual authority for his position, which I felt did not belong to him. And I, I felt we needed to say as a church that that did not belong to the president. And furthermore, he was misusing it and misappropriating it for a way of leadership that I felt stood in opposition to real opposition to the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus would have us as his followers say and do in that moment. And so that was the distinction that I felt needed to be made in that moment. Your new book, How We Learn to Be Brave, sort of deciding mm-hmm. to stay, deciding to go, deciding when to start, all of these things. What is your process of discernment in learning to be brave? Well, actually, you know, the subtitle of the bookmark was the title that I was working with the entire time I wrote it, which is Decisive Moments in Life and Faith. And what I wanted to explore in great depth and also breadth was the moments in life that present themselves to us where we are called upon um, and we feel it. I mean, we feel it very consciously and powerfully. We are called upon to step into a decision that is asking of us in that moment more than we even know that we have or are, and that those are the moments that teach us courage, teach us to be brave. And for those of us who are people of faith, and I and I am, I wanted to describe what it feels like on the inside when it feels like a holy summons as well as a life summons. You know, they can happen at the same time, but when it feels bigger than life circumstance, but it actually feels like a call or a summons from God. And and then I to draw upon not only my own life experience, but that images from scripture, images from literature, um, historical examples, people that I've known who have found themselves in a crucible moment and made a choice. And then also all the things that lead up to those choices and all the ways that we live as a result of them. And so you mentioned several, the, the calls when we feel that moment is asking us to go somewhere, to, to leave where we are, either physically or in some other way, and go somewhere else. But it can be equally decisive to make the decision to stay where we are when the option to go is there and compelling and maybe even more attractive than staying, right? I also talk about acceptance as a choice, 
when we are faced with realities that we would have done anything to avoid, a life circumstance that has been presented to us or a societal circumstance, and we find that it's bigger than we are, but our choice of accepting it and allowing it to allowing our destiny to be shaped through it, again, a very courageous choice. So those, that was the way I was thinking about it. And so discernment being the response to life or spiritual situations that evoke in us a response. And then the lifelong consequences of those responses that we live out in all the other moments of our lives. As you're talking, I'm remembering uh, listening to there's a lecture years ago by Eli Wiesel, the Nobel laureate, who's a survivor of the Holocaust. Right. And he told a story of the Midrash, which are these stories, commentaries on Hebrew scriptures. And the story goes that God assembled three people to ask them, what should he do about the Jews who were enslaved in Egypt? And one said, you should let them go. The other one said, oh, they should stay in slavery because they'll learn more. And Job answered, I don't know, I'm neutral. And for that, he was punished. <laughs> and it's just a great story. There are times in our lives when being neutral is not an option. Right. It's not an option or it will kill us in some way or it will kill a part of us or we will be lesser for it. I mean, there's, there are lots of ways we can drown out or distract ourselves from these, these, these moments of choice or of acceptance. And part of what I wanted to do was to normalize the experience so we could all see ourselves in them. Because a lot of these decisive moments are not, they're not the ones that make headlines, Mark. There aren't, mm -hmm. They aren't the ones that thrust us into the public arena. In fact, those of us who are on occasion thrust into the public arena up for these things, we have to be especially careful because we can get seduced into thinking that they're the only ones that count, right? Mm -hmm. And we start chasing them, which is really, really dangerous. But most of these decisive moments are very personal. Some are known only to us and, and God and perhaps a few other people. Others set us on a course, but the fruits of which we're not going to see for a very long time, if at all. And on occasion, they come at us so quickly that we really don't have much time to think. And all we have in us in that moment is our wits to respond, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and that's when I think it's it's more... A reflection of the person that we've become over a lifetime that allows us to step up into those moments. But these are not the purview of the really brave people that you and I might point to. This is all of us. And while it's a faith experience for me, I think it's a human experience for all of us. However, whatever lens we look upon from a spiritual perspective. You mentioned last night uh, you attended the 11th annual vigil for survivors, the victims of gun violence, which began after the Newtown, Connecticut shooting. And it's held every year at St. Mark's Episcopal Church on Capitol Hill. And I've said to the rector there, Michelle Morgan, you are the spiritual center of the gun violence prevention movement because uh, people go there for pilgrimage. This is an ongoing struggle. You have been involved. I've been at those vigils. Political people come, but the real power is in the survivors who hold up the pictures of the person who has been killed, say their name, and just that sense of grief, but also solidarity is really, really powerful. And as we think about 
that that happened last night and this ongoing work that both of us are deeply engaged in around guns, as people of faith, what can, what should we be doing around gun violence? Oh, Mark, on some level, it, it depends on who and where we are, right? And what our point of entry into the work might be. I would say the larger sort of umbrella question is to persevere, um, yeah. to persevere in a, in a commitment and a hope that the way things are in this country is not the way that it needs to be and that it can be different. I heard um, David Hogg say yesterday, which was just so compelling, he's uh, one of the survivors from the Parkland shootings in um, Florida at the high school, Stoneman Blackman High School. And he said, he reminded us all that there was a generation of people, maybe you and I are the remnants of that, that had drills in school where we would hide under our desks in case there was a nuclear attack, right? And my elementary school was a bomb shelter in case there was a nuclear attack, right? And he said, we don't do that anymore. In part, we don't do that anymore because of the commitment of a nation to arms reduction and a de-escalation of the nuclear threat between the Soviet, former Soviet Union and the United States. And he was using that as an example to say, right now we are raising generations of children who only know drills in their schools in case of a shooting, in case of an active shooter. And he was just saying, may that one day be a memory. And I thought that was just such a hopeful thing to mm-hmm. say that the way things are now, we don't have to raise generations of kids who are taught on a regular basis what to do when an active shooter comes into their schools, right? And that there are ways we can hold a vision that this, this season, this epidemic will in fact pass. And then in terms of what we should be doing, it depends on where we are. And um, like I, I made a decision, as you know, while the federal government is right in my, you know, proverbial geographic backyard, I've decided that I'm going to spend my energies, that I have left most of my energies on trying to address the local issues in Washington, D.C. So just learning what I can about Washington, D.C. You've taken a different path. You are trying to create a network of faith leaders across the country. There were people last night who, um, whose beloved had committed suicide, and they were committed to working on safe gun storage laws, right? There's just any, the the epidemic is so broad and so diverse that where we engage can really depend on where we are. That we engage in some way feels like the call to persistence because it would be easy to give up hope and to give up vision for what could be. And it would also be easy to lose sight of the progress, in fact, that has been made. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like perseverance is one of the things that we can hold on to and then choose as best we can the part of that work that's ours to do. Well, as you're saying, the perseverance, it makes me think of our colleague, Jim Wallace, who said, hope is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. We have a very big rock pushing up a steep hill, but there are days, I think, when some of us say, oh, I need to back away from this and I back away from a little for a day, and then I go back to it. And so many people are doing that. And that annual gathering at St. Mark's Church is just a real momentum builder, it seems to me. Right. I mean, we have to acknowledge that we get tired, right? Yeah. But but then somebody else carries the mantle for a while, and then we get back in. And uh, we may not see it in our lifetime. Like, how many, yeah. how many pauses for... 
for justice or for change are generational. And so you, you do the work that's before you. This is my last question. So Marianne, as we know, there's a, a great polarity around how people approach guns. There are some who say uh, that having more guns keeps us safer. Others would say having more guns is more dangerous. How can we as religious leaders step into that breach and offer reconciliation or some kind of common ground? Any thoughts about that? Well, you know, I feel a little bit like Job on that one, Mark. I'm not sure that I know because the views are so strident. I mean, they are so positioned and there are entire worldviews that have coalesced and informed around them. I would say it's, for me, it, it's, it's a humble question. I, I want to stay in relationship with people who view this issue so differently and listen and understand. And so part of it is staying in relationship and using the moments of crisis to build or to forge some kind of meeting place where we can have conversations. But I do wonder sometimes if the um, forces that are persuaded that we need to have as many guns as possible and as many lethal guns as possible available to virtually all Americans, I think on some level that is a that might need to be settled in a legislative way first, because I don't know that we're going to have a moment where the country is going to wake up and be of one mind about that. Sometimes I think, as, as King said, laws may not make you love me, but laws can keep you from killing me or lynching me. I think this might be an instance where laws might help change the public narrative the way anti-smoking laws did, the way um, seatbelt laws did. I mean, sometimes you just have to slog it out in the public arena and then have the social mood of the country change. But I, I don't know. So I'm just going to stay in the conversations as I can. The data suggests that the majority of Americans would be in favor of some of the things that would make a dramatic difference in levels of gun violence in this country. And so if we can get a few more legislative wins on that side, we might see some real change. Yeah. What I've learned, I remember several years ago, I went to a gun show and in the course of wandering around, I realized I was listening to conversations that I didn't understand because they're talking about equipment and metaphors that I never use. And the uh, epiphany for me was, oh my God, this, this is part of American culture. This is from the beginning. And, and I realized, oh, I and so many of us approach that culture with disdain and arrogance, yes. which yes. just causes them to double down. So how can we, you know, be more mindful, as you said earlier, to be careful about the language that we use? That's a key piece. That said, <laughs> I'm convinced and the data supports it. More guns do not make people safer. And, right. you know, I think we need to continue to work at that. Yeah, I there was I, I just want to say in closing there was a um, I don't know if you saw it, but the Washington Post put out an article a photo journal article on the effects of AK forty sevens and other uh, weapons of mass violence in mm -hmm. you know what the impact is and they they decided they were going to do that because they just think that we have been shielded as a country from the impact of these guns on what the, what it actually does 
to people and to and to environs. And they didn't show bodies, right? They didn't show us what bodies look like when they have been torn apart by 20 bullets, but they are, they was pretty close. And one of their reasons was to say, we have to show people what these guns do. And I wonder, although the majority of people who die, die from handguns and lethal handguns, I wonder if the movement will begin when we force the nation to look at the consequences of some of these guns that are being marketed to people as either self-defense or of weapons of sport when they are, in fact, military-grade weapons that are wreaking havoc on our nation. I don't know. I mean, I just feel like that may be a point of entry. I'm willing to go there if it would move the dial. Yeah. Well, your ministry, your witness, your passion, your faith certainly moves the dial, I think, in a wide array, certainly does with me in the years that we've known each other. And it's just an honor to hear you, to spend this time together. And Marianne, how how can people follow you, uh, website? Sure. Yeah. I, most of my work is through my, you know, my day job as Bishop of the Diocese of Washington. So if, if people just type in their search engine, Bishop Mary Ann Buddy, they'll find I have a personal website, but it's basically a placeholder and it'll direct them, direct people to my, you know, my writings, which is housed on the Diocese of Washington's page. I'm not extraordinarily active on social media, but they'll find me there as well. Um, mostly Instagram and Facebook. And then I hope people will consider dipping into the book because it was sort of the culmination of, of my life's work thus far. And I'd be honored if people read it. The title again is How We Learn to Be Brave, Decisive Moments in Life and Faith. Well, thank you. Again, I'm Mark Beckwith, retired bishop of the Diocese of Newark. And one of my privileges is to serve alongside Marianne in a whole number of different capacities. Thank you for joining Reconciliation Roundtable. It's been a real honor to be with you, Marianne. God's peace. Thank you, Mark. And the same to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reconciliation Roundtable. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and visit markbeckwith.net to stay up to date with new episodes, blog content, and other news. Please, if you could, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It helps new listeners to find us.